I'm going to, uh, I'm going to start off today, I'm going to make a wild assumption about you. And I'm very confident that I'm right in this assumption. I'm so confident that if I am wrong after what I say, you are free to stand up and like throw something at me if that's what you want to do. I will tell you, if you decide to throw something at me, you better make sure you hit me and you knock me out because if you don't, it, you're going to be in for a rough time. But, but I'm really confident in my assumption. So, so, so here's the assumption. Uh, the assumption is I, I know that when you woke up this morning and you were getting ready for church and you decided I'm coming to church and you were brushing your teeth and washing your face, I know that not one single person said, I want to get up and go to an unhealthy church. I know that that is not why as you were driving here, you didn't say, oh, I'm so excited to go to that place where they teach heresy and where they're not safe and where they're, they're just super unhealthy. I know that's not what you said, right? I know that for, for many of you, you landed at Bridgeway after working really hard and, and you know, trying out several churches and having all kinds of interesting experiences. And a part of the reason you landed here is because in a lot of ways, um, we, we are a healthy church. We are not a perfect church. Uh, but, but we are a church that, that you felt like would be healthy for you and, and for your family. And for the most part, you were right about that choice, right? Um, yeah, we can celebrate us. I'm, I'm all for waving our flag. But what I want to be, what I want to, what I want to consider today is like, how does a church actually become healthy? And more importantly, how does a church remain healthy, Right? Because the reality is, if I said, hey, tell me about an unhealthy church, right? As soon as I said it, y'all all, everybody has a name right now of a church that is not healthy, that they haven't best me. Right now, you have the name of a church on your mind, right? And, and the interesting thing is, if you were to consider that church and, and talk to its members, you would find likely a lot of people in that church who really want it to be healthy, who really grieve the fact that maybe it's not as healthy as it could be. If you were to, to do a, a deep dive into the history of, of whatever church came to your mind, you, you would probably find that at one point that church may have been healthy. It may have been a good church with healthy elements, but at some point it stopped being healthy. And so you're filling the blank this morning, and it might not actually be in your bulletin. You may just have to free write it because I didn't finish writing this on time like I was supposed to. The fill in the blank is this. Being a healthy church requires intentionality. Being a healthy church requires intentionality. And the reason that, that I want to I do a deep dive into the, the, the elements of being a healthy church today is because so many churches that I have watched go from being very healthy to very unhealthy, they did it during a season of very quick, fast growth. Bridgeway is in a season of a lot of quick growth. We are in a harvest. Our ministries are taking off. Our numbers are growing we are in a season of harvest, and if we are not careful, we very easily could end up like whatever church came to mind when I said, tell me about an unhealthy church. And so what I want to do today is try to lift from a very lengthy passage of text that we're going to read today some principles that we can implement to become healthy believers because the way that we become a healthy church is by becoming healthy individuals. It's the same like a family. If the individuals of the family are not healthy, the family will not be healthy, right? And so I want us to, to, to lift from the text 
some things we can learn about how do we become more and more healthy as a church and how do we maintain it? How do we protect the health of this church at all costs? So I wanna jump into the text right away. We've been um, in the book of Acts all year. And of course, the book of Acts is about the building and the growing of the uh, first Christian churches in the East. And a central character in this story all year has been the Apostle Paul. He has been on this missionary journey where he's going places and starting churches. And what we're getting ready to read, and again, it is a long passage of scripture. I don't apologize for that. I think that the Bible is the teacher. It's the most important thing you'll hear today. But we're about to read him giving his farewell speech. Uh, He has invested in a particular church for a long time, and now he is saying uh, goodbye to them. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 20, verses 17. We're going to read all the way through 38. We're going to read every word. Buckle up. Acts chapter 20, 17 through 38. In the blue Bibles and the chairs in front of you, it's going to be page 929. Uh, Again, underneath the seat in front of you, there are Bibles. If you left yours in the car, you're welcome to use that one. Page 929, Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. It says this, Now from the city of Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. From the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. I'm going to take a pause right there, and I I just need to communicate this to you. There is going to be tears and trials. There is no life on this side of heaven that is absent of tears and trials. It's going to be hard. Nobody's trying to trick you in this. The Bible says your days are going to be short and full of trouble. It's going to be hard. And, and, and really, that's, that's not a bad thing. Because the difficult life cultivates dependence, right? Tears and trials teach uh, humility and grace. It, it, this is why the, the, the Bible says that it is easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It's not because having money is bad. It's because when life is too easy, you don't know you need somebody. You don't know that you need Jesus, right? So he says there's going to be tears and trials. He said that happened to me, watch this, through the plot, he says, of my folks, Right, that it wasn't, it wasn't the folks on the other side of town, across the way, it wasn't the folks who believe different, vote different, that made my life hard. It was my folks, right? Paul said, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and now... I'm going to Jerusalem, he says, constrained by the Spirit, not constrained by my own feelings and ideas and thoughts and desires and and, and, and culture. He says, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. So Paul says, wherever I go, the Holy Spirit comes with me. Verse 24, he says, but I do not account my life 
of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course. And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul says, this is farewell. Y'all not gonna see me again. Verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you know, not just the parts that I liked and that worked with my worldview, but the whole counsel of God. He says, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, Paul says, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, he says, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now, he says, I commend to you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build, up, build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me in all things. I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. Now, this is my favorite part. It says, and... And this, this, this is my favorite part because this and in this last verse, it carries so much emotion because these are people grieving, a people heartbroken. And it says that even during that season, it says, and they accompanied him to the ship, that they still did what they were supposed to do. Y'all still with me? All right, we made it through a lot of, a lot of text, but, but I wanna talk today I wanna begin the conversation about what it means to be a healthy believer in a healthy church by talking about transition. Because transition is this dichotomy of, of challenge and necessity. Uh, the transition is one of those things that it really behooves all believers to learn how to navigate because at some point, you're gonna to have to deal with transition. It doesn't matter who you are. At some point, your life is going to change in a way that you don't have control over, and you are gonna to have to move from one place to another. In our BYA family, one of our married couples just had a baby. Their lives are transitioning. They are transitioning into being new parents and new sleeping schedules and, and, and new ways of spending money. It's a transition, right? You may have transitioned from one job to another or one location to another, um, but the reality is that like, like at some point, you're going to have to transition. And in the text today, what we're really seeing is Paul going through transition and modeling how to do it well, right? He has spent three years, three wonderful, hard years, 
planting and building this church in Ephesus, which is modern day Turkey. And, and, and he, is, he is invested in their leaders and in their elders and, and in their preachers. And he has, he has grown to really love them. You know, he, it, there's something about when you do a hard thing with a group of people that, that bonds you. He is bonded with them. He, he is bonded with them so deeply that his original plan, as he feels the Lord calling him back to Jerusalem, he, he first says, I'm not going to stop in Ephesus and say goodbye because I know that it's going to be hard and it's going to be painful and it's going to be difficult and it could delay me. So he says, I, 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 I'm not going to do that. I, I want to talk to folks today who are avoiding a transition that you know you need to take because you're scared it's gonna be hard, because you're scared it's going to be painful. If, if you're in that situation and the Lord is tugging you and you are resistant because you're scared, I want you to pay a lot of attention to Paul today because Paul understands and models for us that, that the difficulty of transition does not excuse you from its requirement. And so from the city in Miletus, uh, Paul calls to the leaders of the church of Ephesus and he, he calls them to this special meeting. He says, I want to talk to you. I really want to pour out my heart to you. It's such a good example of um, having the hard conversations, not avoiding them because they're difficult. I say all the time, straight talk makes for straight understanding, right? And, and so for, for those of you who are avoiding having those hard conversations, it's time to have them. You, maybe you were saying, I'm waiting for a sign from the Lord. This is it, sign. <laughs> Have the conversation, make the transition. So he calls, he calls the, the, the people over and he pours out his heart. And what I will tell you is that if you are going to have a hard conversation, one of the ways that, that you navigate it is you actually come bearing your heart. You come wearing your heart on your sleeve because the vulnerable heart produces the grease that makes the cog of a difficult conversation turn with more ease, right? And so he calls them together. He says, hey, we, we, we need to have a conversation. And this passage in Acts chapter 20 is often kind of overlooked because in the grand scope of the book of Acts, it's not a really exciting chapter, right? Like there's not a lot of action and, and, and drama. It's just really people crying and having a conversation. But what's so powerful about this section in the book of Acts is that it gives us a different perspective of who Paul is. Mostly through the book of Acts, we meet Paul the evangelist. We meet Paul the apostle, the sent one, Paul the preacher, Paul the, the bearer of good news. But when we get to Acts chapter 20, we get to meet Paul the pastor. And we get to see his kind of heart as a, as a leader and a shepherd of God's people and really get to see his vision for the church, right? So he begins his goodbye speech in verse 18, and he uses how he lived as an example of how to minister, right? He says, I have lived with you, not above you, but beside you. He, th th this, is, this is what he's, he's showing for us. He's showing us that the healthy church is the, is the church that practices life on life heart on heart, right? That the, the, the healthy church is the church full of people who recognize that church is not something that you got to get dressed up for and you come and you perform, 
right? That church isn't something that you, you put on and you take off when you get home, right? And what I recognize is that because church comes with a system of morality that we are trying to lean into, it becomes an easy space for there to be a lot of judgment in ways that make it unsafe and that make us want to perform. There's nobody who's more tempted to do this than me and then folks who are on this stage, that there's this temptation to get on stage and perform. But that's not really the design of church. Church should really permeate every layer of our lives, right? If you go to churches in the East, right, most of those churches today that are in the East, that are in places like Yemen and and Syria and Israel, they often have churches that are right between like the supermarket and the post office. Why? Because it's life on life. Because on my way to the post office and on my way to the grocery store, I'm also going to stop by and see the Lord. Right. And, and, and so this is this is what he is. He is speaking to in terms of what the church should be, that the church should be the world's greatest model of togetherness. And so Paul starts off his conversation. He says, I did life with you. It got hard, but but it was hard together. Like we cried, but we cried together. Like we we struggled and we strove and we hurt and we built and and at times we failed, but we did it together. And beneath this teaching of Paul's is, is, is an example. Like Paul doesn't start off his speech by saying, remember what I said. He says, remember what I did. You might be familiar with the age old adage, um, preach the gospel all the time, if necessary, use your words, right? And it's because your life is your witness. People will pay way more attention to what you do than what you say, right? I, most, of, most of the folks that, that I get to do ministry with are between the ages of 18 and 25. One of the reasons that I love that age group is because I don't have to deal with parents, right? I'd be praying for Pastor Cliff and Pastor Gabriel. I don't have to deal with y'all. I don't need permission slips. I ain't got to give you back, right? You come to me, what's going on with my kid? You better ask your kid. He's grown, right? <laughs> but so often when I meet parents of, of, of folks in, in the ministry that I get to be a part of, uh, when I meet the parents, I'm like, ah, I see why so-and-so is how he is. I see why so-and-so is how she is. And so often the parents will say, oh my goodness, we, when she was a little girl, we used to tell her all the time and we would teach her and we raised her reading the Bible. And, we, and it's like, yeah, but you didn't model what you taught. You taught something and you modeled something else and then you mad at your child for being what you modeled, right? What you do is what you teach. And Paul says that the healthy church is the church of example, and not just example, but of service. He says, I served the Lord with all humility. He says, I kept nothing back that was helpful, but I proclaimed it all to you. I didn't just teach what I liked, but I taught it all to you. And he says, not just to you, but also to the Greeks. So he clarifies for us that a healthy church is a diverse diverse church. And what I want to be really clear about is that when we talk about a diverse church, one, we are not talking about diversity for the sake of diversity, right? Just so that we have a lot of colors. But the reason that the diverse church is the healthy church is because a diverse church is a church that's open to all kinds of people. The diverse church is the church that the atheist can walk in and be loved and, 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 and taught and transformed and introduced to Jesus. The, 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 when when, when, when the, the person dealing with addiction can walk in and feel safe and hear and meet Jesus and be transformed. When the trans person can walk into the church and hear and meet Jesus and be transformed, that's when we can say with our chest, oh, what a healthy church I go to. Paul says... 
that ministering means serving the Lord with tears and trials, boldly teaching everyone publicly and privately of repentance. So what he is talking about then is a holistic ministry. The Bible describes us as being spirit, soul, and body. So, so a healthy ministry is a ministry that speaks to all those parts. It is why at Bridgeway, we have a deliverance team with some older women that can throw down with some demons. I just seen some 80-year-olds take a demon and wear him out, you understand? And we have a mental health department where we provide therapy. Why? Because some of you need exorcisms, some of you need therapy and meds, and some of you need both. We got it all for you, right? Some, some of y'all need to start with the exorcism, walk on down to therapy, then go up and, and talk with Pastor Brian, and then make your way down to prayer on Monday nights. The point is that, that Paul is describing a ministry that, that speaks to the whole person. This is the ministry that he has built. And he has done so with such excellence that there is, there is no inconsistency, there is no incongruency between what he has said and what he has lived, what he has said and what he has done. This is why like, I'm trying to be like Paul. Because right now in my life, there is still too much inconsistency between what I teach and what I do. I'm trying to narrow that gap, you understand? And so Paul says to them, he says, you watched me serve. He, said, he says, you watched me as I taught from house to house. The implication here being that this was not a church that was overly beholden to a particular building, but that this was a church that saw ministry as a house to house, home to home, person to person activity, right? It, it, it means that, that healthy, healthy churches contextualize ministry. It means that the way we do ministry to the Williams family is not the way we're gonna do ministry to the Brown family. There are different needs, right? That the way that we, the, the, the way that, that, that we did ministry last year is not necessarily the way we're gonna do ministry next year, right? That, 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 that we're contextualizing the ministry not just for the who that we're doing ministry with. I was in a different country one time um, and it was a very hot, warm, dry country. And you know, scripture says um, that, 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 that your sins that were as scarlet um, as blood, that, um, that he makes them white as snow. You're familiar with that scripture, right? But in this particular country, it wasn't no snow, right? So we had to contextualize it. And we had to say white as lamb's wool. Why? Because it had a lot of lambs right? Contextualize ministry, not just for the who, but also for the when, right? For the when and the where of the ministry, that different seasons require different things. If we wake up tomorrow, God forbid, and there's some new variant, that means we can't meet indoors. You know what we're going to do? We're going to come in here. We're going to stack all these chairs. We're going to pull up the dollies from the basement. We're going to take these chairs outside in the parking lot, put up a speaker, and we're going to church in the parking lot because we will contextualize ministry for the moment, right? And what I am learning is that transitions give us an opportunity to do that in our personal lives and also as a church, that every time you transition, you have an opportunity to then contextualize the way that you are serving and engaging with God. And what I am learning um, is that one of the, the key ingredients that makes surrender possible, that makes or breaks transitions, is surrender, right? Look at verse 22. 
Paul says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing, it is the Greek word Edo, not knowing what will happen to me. Paul says, I am willing to go and do this hard thing, having no idea how it's gonna land. And the thing is, he's not just saying that, if his history is any indication of what's going to happen in his future, then he knows he's in trouble, right? Um, I've, been, I've, been, I've been walking through a little, a little bit of depression uh, over the last several weeks, and um, the problem when your boss is also prophetic um, is that you can't really hide it, right? <laughs> And so I got a hey bud text from, from Pastor Lance. Anytime it's hey bud, it's gonna be a problem. <laughs> so he hit me up and he was like, hey, let's go to Apple Hill. I wanna check on you. And you know, he wanted to love on me and, and, and take care of me, which I really appreciate. And so um, I, I went um, and, and met him at his house and he, when he came out the house, he did this like little movement with his shoulder. It was like really quick, but it reminded me a ton of how my grandfather's moved. And my grandfathers are old men. So when I saw him just like move his shoulders like that, it made me think about the reality that over the next 20, 25 years, that we are going to watch our pastor grow old, that I'm going to watch him become an old man. And as I thought about that, I began to panic because I know the ways that age really does impact people and businesses and, and all kinds of things. And so I, I began to wonder, oh my God, what is that gonna mean? What is it gonna mean as he gets older? What is it gonna mean when it's time for him to retire? Are we even gonna have a church if he retires? Like he can't retire, he just has to die, he can't retire. It got so <laughs> dramatic, it, got, it really did. It went, like, it went from like this actually fairly young man moving his shoulders weird to like me writing a eulogy, right? <laughs> The point is that there is so much that I, I didn't know, I don't know about what that's going to feel like, how that's gonna impact the church, what's, what's gonna happen, I have no idea. And the reality is so much of our life is, is that, is not knowing, is not knowing what the economy is gonna be like and if my car is gonna work next year and how my kids are gonna act next year. And, and, and so uh, Paul models for us that one of the ways that that, that we experience peace when we don't have control is to own that we don't have control. You don't have control over just about anything, right? Not your kids. This is for some of y'all that got young kids and you be trying to control them because you can't control really anything. And I'm telling you, when you get to a point when you stop trying to control stuff, it's going to change your life. When you stop trying to control people and what they think and what they believe and what they do and when they do and how they do it, when you let that go, it's gonna change your relationships. You know, your spouse might start liking you again. Thank me later, right? When I was, um, when I was younger, my mom made us go to uh, Celebrate Recovery, which is a 12-step program um, that helps you deal with a variety of issues. Come on, Celebrate Recovery, people. Uh-huh, it's a few of us, it's a few of us, right? Um, 
And I hated going. My mother had been married to an alcoholic. It was a whole thing. She wanted us to go because of, of the ways that that had impacted us. And I hated going. But one of the, the most valuable things that, that I learned there, they, they make you recite all the time, it's called the serenity prayer. Uh, some of you are familiar with it. It says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change and the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Everybody knows them first four lines. They don't realize that there's more, right? It says, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next, right? It's powerful, right? It, there, there's a song, we sing that song, so I throw up my hands and praise you again and again, right? That, that, that is a song about surrender because it says, I throw up my hands. That means I'm taking them off of whatever they're on, whatever I was trying to control. And then I focus on praising you again and again because that's really the only thing that I have control over is my hallelujah, right? And Paul implies that the reason he can practice surrender is because he says the Holy Spirit testifies, that means tells the truth to him in every city, he says, that imprisonment and affliction await him. So he says, it is the very thing that scares me. It is the very unknown. It is the challenge itself that the Spirit of God speaks through to me, testifies to me what I need to hear so that I can walk through every season, every difficulty, every challenge, every transition with my head up and my chest out with a bold, audacious confidence knowing that I'm gonna be all right, right? And this, this perspective is one that like all the fathers of the faith, all the, all the big dogs, that they, they all had adopted. The apostle John quotes Jesus Having said in John 14, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. You who believe in God, believe also in me. He goes on to say, in my father's house, there are many rooms. Some translations say mansions. He says, if it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will go, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may also be, and you know where I'm going. And so Jesus says this to his students, and then one of them, Thomas, gets a little nervous. And Thomas is like, well, Lord, how are we supposed to know the way to where you're going? And Jesus responds and he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. He says, if you have known the, me, you have also known my father. He says, from now on, you do know me and you have seen him. He goes on to say in this very same chapter, he says that the Holy, the Holy Spirit will be with you forever. Like, you know how long forever is? right? You know how many seasons, how many ups and downs, right? How many goods and, 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 and bads? Like, like, like when, when you don't have the answers and when the path isn't clear and, and when the resources aren't there, all of that is still under the umbrella of forever, meaning that you have the Holy Spirit as a tool to help you in your peacetime and in your wartime and in your famine and in your abundance. In the same chapter, Jesus goes on to say, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. That means whatever things you need for whatever season you're transitioning into, you have a professor. You have somebody with a PhD in life, 
ready to help you. And then he says, peace, I leave you. My peace, I give you. Your inheritance is peace, right? I don't feel peaceful. Maybe you don't, but you still have it. It is still accessible to you. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And what's so wild about this is that Jesus says this to his students as their lives are just being turned upside down. They go from not knowing him at all, never having met him, to meeting him, and then having to unlearn what they thought he was going to be. They thought he was going to be this warrior, and he ends up being this prince of peace. And so they get to know him. They eventually leave their lives and their life plans to become his students and follow him. And then they watch as that gets them blacklisted. And they watch as their friend, not just their savior, not some distant big thing in the sky, but this was like their homie gets murdered in front of them in the most brutal, gruesome, grotesque way. And then, then when he dies, then they're, they're, they're petrified because if they'll kill our leader, they'll kill us too. And then they start hearing rumors, oh, these, he's been resurrected, he's been resurrected, he's been resurrected, and they have trouble believing it. And then they, they finally see him, and it's like, oh my gosh, Lord, you are alive, and we're going to be okay. And it's at this point that Jesus says, oh no, I'm leaving tomorrow. I beg your pardon, Lord. You can't, you can't possibly be thinking about leaving in this time of transition, in this time when so much is unstable and scary. And it is at this point that Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. There's no please in front of it. It's not a request, right? It is, the, it is what you can control. It's the contents and the posture of your heart. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. And it, it is the Holy Spirit and the relationship that folks like Paul and John and Jesus had with the Holy Spirit that allowed them to endure and walk through what they walked through. It made Paul so radical. Paul said in verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. What I want to encourage you with is the reality that Paul had to learn this, that this was not a perspective that he was born into, that he wasn't always trusting, he wasn't always humble, he wasn't always flexible, that, 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 that before, before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had actually spent his whole life trying to control his life, right? The best teacher, teacher of teachers, he was taught by Gamaliel, a chief leader of the Sanhedrin, not a poor man, a highly educated man, a well-connected man, a man free from the trials that Christians face, mostly because he was causing them, but, but, but he is a man who has worked so hard to control his life, and then Jesus saves him. And when Jesus saves him, he changes his life. And one of the ways that he changes his life is that Jesus then demands that Paul become an expert at flexibility and transition and doing ministry in those moments. Jesus demands this of us too, right? Jesus demanded Paul be so flexible. Jesus called Paul to be a church planter. Now listen, if you have ever worked in a church, you know that church planting is at the bottom of the list of things that most of us want to do. I'd rather clean the toilets here <laughs> than, than plant a church. I told Lance when, we, when, we, when I was first talking about coming here, I said, now look, 
You know, you come from one of the big churches. Now, if you, if you start to feel in your spirit that you want a Bridgeway East and a Bridgeway West and a Bridgeway Sacramento and Vallejo and San Francisco, that's cool. Just know I don't want no parts of it. I don't want to be on the team. I don't want to help. I can't, I can't be a part of it because church planting is hard. But when you have this deep relationship with the Holy Spirit, it allows you to do even the hard thing, even the thing that you don't want to. Paul was so obedient to this calling, he says, I invested to the point of tears. What have you invested in to the point of tears? I'll take some wild guesses. I will guess that you have invested in your children to the point of tears. Mm-hmm. I assume that you have invested in your spouses and your relationships to the point of tears and perhaps in your vocational work to the point of tears. My question is, have you invested in ministry to the point of tears? And maybe you thought, because you're not a professional pastor, because you don't get paid by a church, that you were exempt from the call of ministry, but you're not. Ministry is helping people meet Jesus, that's it. It's blessing people in Jesus' name. That's ministry. And it is the call and the purpose of every single believer. It looks different for each of us. But you are called to do ministry. Are you investing in ministry the way you are investing in your marriage? Are you bringing that same energy, that same care? You, you are committed to your children, right? Keep that same energy as we talk about how do you show up to the space of Christianity and bring the best that you have. You know, I, I think often about how grateful I am that, that Paul never wrote a letter to the church in America because I think it would hurt our feelings. <laughs> I, I think Paul would let us have it. If we had to open to the church in America, I think we might be in trouble, right? Because we have, we have turned church too much into the space that I go to be filled. And it is a place that you go to be filled, but it's also a place that you go to be emptied, right? It is also a place that you come to invest as a way of life, as a way of being, right? I'm grateful that we don't have to open up the Bible and, and read from the book of Bridgelations, I think. <laughs> I don't wanna be called out by Paul, right? In one translation of the text, Paul says that, that, that in every city, what await him is chains and tribulations, right? Think about that language. Like if I say, hey, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? And what awaits you at my house for dinner is chains and tribulations. You will probably be like, mm, actually we're booked for the rest of the year. Like we're not coming, right? And yet still, the last thing that he says in, in, in that translation, he says, but none of these things moved me. Right? Like, what I want to be clear about is that the healthy church is a flexible church, but it is a rooted church. Right? It is a church rooted in the reality of who Jesus is, of who the Holy Spirit is, of who the Father is. What are you rooted in? Sometimes we got to go back to like the, the old hymns of the church, you know? Like, I, I love all, I love the Maverick City and the Elevate, well, I love, I love a lot of the new stuff, but, but there's something about the old hymns of the church, because, like, if you look on the stage, you see all this stuff, in the church I grew up in, we ain't had none of that. We had one piano, it was out of tune, because it was donated, 
and we had one lady that played that piano, and she was mean. That, na- that lady was so nasty, that piano player was so nasty. I t- the, the, at her funeral, I got up to do the eulogy. I said, ain't God good, y'all. That lady was terrible. <laughs> and she didn't, and she didn't, and she didn't, you know how like Rayon gets up here and he just plays so pretty and just dances on the keys? This lady didn't do that. This lady banged the keys. Every song, dun, 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 right? And so we used to always sing uh, this one song. It goes like this. It says, I'm in Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Oh, I know y'all don't know this. This ground <laughs> is sinking sand. I'll teach it on Thursday, right? <laughs> I hated that song. God, I hated that song. But it was so formative to my theology. It shaped who I am and what I believe because I grew up singing all other ground is sinking sand. It taught me where to put my feet for stability. Paul says I was uncertain, but I didn't move. I cried, but I didn't move. I was depressed, but I didn't move. I had some regrets, but I didn't move. And it's so profound because he he even says that he, he implies that he doesn't even regret his tears, right? because his tears are proof that he is present with what is happening. His tears are proof that he cared. He says, my tears are the proof of my ministry, right? One sign of a healthy ministry is is the presence of emotions, not the absence of it, right? Because the gospel gospel doesn't harden our hearts, it softens them, it breaks them open to God and to others, right? So that we can do what the Bible says, which is to laugh with those who laugh and weep with those who weep, right? So listen, as, as Bridgeway continues to grow, I don't want you to be surprised as it is a more emotional space, as there are more emotions being here, right? Don't be surprised that as you grow as a believer, as you become more emotional, it means that your heart is sensitive, right? Paul tells us that the struggles he endured aligned his priorities, that when they rioted against him, when they tried to kill him, when they disrespected him, uh, it's, it's really hard. This is why you should study Paul's life. It's really hard to have a woe is me posture when you study Paul's life. Because like, like my life has been hard, like there's been hard moments in my life, but I ain't never been preaching in front of a group of a thousand people and then the people that I'm trying to preach who stood up and tried to kill me. Like, can you imagine? Like, I don't know what I'd do if y'all stood up and tried to kill me right now. Like I could fight about a good five or six of y'all and then at some point it's a wrap, right? <laughs> and so he says, he says, he says, he says this, this experience, it, it gives him perspective and clarity of what's important to him. Look at verse 24. Paul says, I got one goal, right? He says, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is what's important to Paul. This is the number one priority, that he finishes this activity. He doesn't say, I got to do ministry because I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews and I'm of the tribe of Benjamin and I'm smart and I'm intelligent and I'm a good person. No, he says, I, I got to do this because Jesus saved me, because Jesus loved me, because I belong to Jesus. This is why ministry gets to cut the line and rise to the top of my priority list. He says, I did not shrink away from the high calling of ministry given to all b- believers. He describes himself as a runner in a race. Now, this is profound to me because I quite hate running. 
If you see me running, you should start running too, because whatever's chasing after me is probably going, and I don't have to outrun it, I just got to outrun you. You should start running, right? And so this idea of doing this hard thing, like running as an analogy for Christianity is is profound to me, right? And, and what's profound is that Paul doesn't just say, I have to finish the race, but if you were to read the King James version of the passage, he says, if only to finish my course, he adds how to do it. He says, with joy. He implies that where there are tears, there are also be joy. Listen, ministry is hard and painful, but it is also joyful. I don't have to do this, I get to do this. You don't have to do this. You don't have to get up and and, and get dressed and drive your way to church. You get to do it. You don't have to open up your Bible. You get to do it. You don't have to pray. And the God of angel armies hears and responds. You get to talk to Jesus and hear his response. Don't confuse joy with happiness. Happiness is an emotion. Joy is a perspective. Joy is a framework, a way of looking at life. And, And what's profound is that as Paul is in this place, like heavy things are on his mind. Death is on his mind. Paul would not die for another several years, but but he's already recognizing, look, I got a few short days on this earth. Whatever I do with them, it better be worth it. In fact, he implies it better be worth dying for, that the gospel I preach better be worth dying for, the gospel I live better be worth dying for, right? And so what that means is that if what you are living is, is, is simply a gospel of moral reform, that's not a gospel worth dying for. If, if what you're living is a gospel of trying to save yourself through good works, that's not a gospel worth dying for. If you're, if you're living a gospel of religious traditions and mystical mumbo jumbo and a gospel of trying to be the biggest, coolest, fanciest church and, and to be better than, than those people over there who don't know Jesus, if that's your gospel, it is not worth dying for. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation and of grace, that's the gospel worth dying for. And the challenge is, the challenge is that it is not a convenient gospel. It's not a pretty gospel. It's not an easy gospel. It is a gospel that, that directly goes, it goes against the culture. And some of y'all, y'all got to nod and say, yeah, I'll be telling them secular people. It goes against the culture. I wasn't talking about secular culture. I was talking about church culture. So there's that. It is a gospel that grates against what makes sense and what feels natural. Unconditional love don't feel natural. What feels natural is a love that is attached to a contract with an exit clause and fine print. That's what feels natural, right? But the gospel of Jesus, it's a bloody gospel. Bloody and beautiful. Paul says to them, he says, I won't see you again. Things are about to shift and change and will never be how they were before. But then in verse 28, look what he says. He says, but pay attention. And what does he say that we should pay attention to? He says, pay attention first to yourselves. Take inventory of how you are participating in the life of Jesus, in the life of ministry, in the life of church. Pay attention to how you are navigating transitions. He says, pay attention to yourself. Then he says, pay attention to each other. 
to the body of Christ. What this means is if you go to Bridgeway, you have my attention. If you're a believer, big C church, you have my attention. Paul taught us to pay attention to one another. And he, he does it because he warns us that it is easy to get off course. Look at verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, sparing not the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after you. Therefore, he says, be alert. Remembering that for three years, I did not cease, neither day to admonish everyone with tears. There is a humility that the healthy church has. It is grounded in the ability to say, sometimes we get it wrong. Our history, our Christian history is littered with examples of us getting it wrong. The slave trade, we got it wrong. The crusades, we got it wrong. Apartheid in South Africa, the South African Christian church got it wrong. The German church in the 1920s and 1930s that was supporting the outrageous behavior of Hitler got it wrong. The churches that have subtly nurtured racism and sexism and misogyny and harm got it wrong. I went to undergrad in Florida where there were churches that they would tell us, A, if you're black, don't go to that church. You won't be safe. It is wild that that would be attached to a church that Jesus. Sometimes we get it wrong, and it makes me open to the possibility that maybe, just maybe, in the year of our Lord, 2023, that maybe we may still get it wrong. There is a humility that the healthy church has. And Paul says, pay attention. Pay attention to your own heart to your own posture, to the ways that you're showing up. Pay attention to each other. He says, therefore, be alert, verse 31, remembering that for three days, three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone, watch this, with tears. There are some people who read this verse and they think that it says, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with rage. That's not what it says. There are some folks who read this and think that it says, I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with violence. That's not what it says, right? It says, I did not cease to admonish everyone with tears. That changes the timbre, texture, and tone of any sort of conversation that I'm having. Paul says, I admonished everyone. Not just with, with tears, but, but I did ministry. Look at verse 35. He says, in all things I have shown you that by working hard, it ain't supposed to be easy. He says, in this way, we may help the weak. Now, when we hear that word weak, it, 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 it may sound degrading, but it's the Greek word astheneo, and it does not uh, mean uh, less valuable or less worthy. It speaks to not having enough of something, Right? He says, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So, so what am I asking us to do? What are we called to do to give? And I'm not talking about money, although that's helpful too, thank you. I'm talking about serving. I'm talking about centralizing, serving, as what it means to be a church. And serving means blessing for the sake of blessing, right? Not for what I can get out of it, 
Not so that I can feel good. I'm not just talking about volunteerism, right? One of the most annoying type of people in the world is the people that, that come and they say, hey, I, I, I would love to serve. How can I help? And you say, oh, well, you know what would be helpful? If you'll just unstack those chairs. And they say, oh, no, I was thinking like maybe I could get on stage and pray. <laughs> Got it, right? Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And, and that word that he uses there, it's the Greek word makarios, and it, it describes somebody who is in a position to be envied by others. And so Jesus is turning this idea on its head. He is saying that when you give, when you're generous, when you show up for full participation, that is what puts you in the place that makes others envy you, right? And being firmly established in that posture of serving, even as the life around you is chaotic and, and, and is moving in ways that you can't control, don't like, don't enjoy, and don't feel good. Prioritizing serving as the central activity of the church is the difference between a healthy church and an unhealthy church. The churches that are most unhealthy are the churches that have forgotten that the job is to serve, that we show up to serve, that when you get ready to come here, I'm serving you by preaching, but you're serving me and others in other ways, that that's what we come to do. And I will tell you, for me personally, I would rather be in a church of 20 servants than 4,000 spectators. I have already identified the very small church in Auburn that I will become a member of if we ever decentralize serving in this church. And so Paul says goodbye to his friends. And he paints this radical vision of what a healthy believer and healthy church can be. Look at verse 36, it says, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him on the ship. It is so powerful because Paul gets to see that the church of Ephesus is picking up what he's laying down. That, that all of his teaching about serving and being a healthy church, that they heard him. Because what do they say as their hearts are broken, as they are stressed, as they are scared? You think about how you would feel emotionally. If Pastor Lance got up here and said, I'm retiring tomorrow, which he's not gonna say, but if he were to say that, think about how you would feel. You'd be shook, right? What are we supposed to do without our leader, our founder, our teacher? Who are we without him and without him in leadership? This is what these people are feeling, and yet they still say, but let me help you, Paul. Let me get your suitcases, and you got, you got your sack lunch, and you got some water for the way, and you got your stomach medicine, and all right, we're going to walk you onto the ship. Now, if you need something, you write us, and we'll, right? That they, they modeled service, contextualized service, that the best way they could bless Paul in that moment was to carry his suitcase onto the ship. For clarity, struggle does not exempt us from serving in God's kingdom. Ministry is the requirement for all believers in all places at all times. And transitions give us this opportunity to root deeper in our relationship with God, to grow as Christ followers. What this means is that the goal of Bridgeway is not to bring some huge bag of accomplishments to Jesus. And quiet is kept, if we're honest about what's in our bag, it's mostly failures anyway, right? 
I, I was telling Pastor Lance about how often I feel just so inadequate, so disqualified for, for this job. And this year marks uh, my decade in ministry, 10 years of professional ministry. That's all right, sorry, sorry. And I was, saying to, I was saying to him that I realized over this 10 years of doing ministry that I have spent so much of it trying to prove that I am worthy of the calling. And maybe that is a part of what is in the way of you fully participating in the life of the church, in the life of Jesus, beyond Bridgeway. If you were to go over there to Bayside or Destiny or someplace tomorrow, my expectation is that you would show up fully for them too, right? Maybe what's in the way is feeling inadequate and disqualified and not good enough. Um, but I'm not doing that anymore. Because what I recognize and have made peace with is the fact that I am unworthy, I am underqualified, I am underskilled for the calling of my life, and yet I am still called. What I will say to you is that you may be inadequate and underqualified, and you may not have all the skills, and it may be hard for you to introduce people to Jesus because you know you got some things in your life that don't look very Jesus-like. You are called nonetheless. You are no longer allowed to hide in the corners of church. You are called to step fully into participating, giving the best that you have. Not to me, not even to Bridgeway. We are not simply talking about volunteerism. We are talking about showing up to the life of Christianity, bringing all that you have. And what I have learned is that as I expose myself more to God, that I, I learn how deeply I am loved and the love of God makes it so that my sin is no longer a barrier, an obstacle to my usefulness and my effectiveness so I can be used at all times. I can wake up like I did this morning and have to roll out of bed and drag myself down here running late and drink a bunch of coffee so I can be just peppy enough to do my job. And then when I get off the stage, I can go home, climb in my bed and go to sleep, watch the new season of my show. I, I, I can do that because I am submitted to God because I, am, I have learned how to navigate transitions. And I'll tell you, as you pick up some of these things that we lifted up from the text, you will be able to get to a place where you can echo the words of the songwriter. He said, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my so you be all glory and honor, dominion and power forever, Jesus. All credit and accolades. Be praised, great God that you are. Thank you for the ways that you walked us through the text, for the ways that your spirit guided us on our didactic quest to find truth and to implement it into our lives. Now, God, center down the things that people were supposed to hear. Take the way I stumbled through this message and root what is true and what is helpful down in people's hearts, God, that we might walk out of here, not a church, not a church full of folks who came and watched a service, but a, but a church full of folks who are serving and who are becoming masterful at navigating the ups and downs and transitions of life. Bless these, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen.